Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is Garrett Ashley Mullet on the show where we talk about everything. This is episode 165 of season 3 and 230 of the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. Today is Saturday, October 16th, 2021. And I'd like to talk a bit about whether Christians will be accepted in our present context. Part of the inspiration for this subject comes from an article I just read by Carl R. Truman in First Things Magazine Online. I'll link to it in the description for this podcast episode. But this is from the November 2021 issue of First Things Magazine. I have been reading this publication for several months now, off and on, not intentionally trying to come back to it again and again, but incidentally coming back to first things again and again and finding consistently good writing, good thinking, sound arguments, truth and honesty and courage and integrity. All of the things which are so very dangerous in our present circumstance. But it's important to remember, as I've talked in recent episodes, about the intersection of rights and responsibilities. If you think that being honest and employing your God-given right to free speech is dangerous, if you think there's a cost to that, just wait until you don't be honest, until you don't employ your right to free speech, until you don't defend your right to free speech. If you think the cost is high to being honest, just try being dishonest or silent or passive, and you will find that the cost to that is much, much higher. There's a twisted sort of a game which is played by our post-truth culture. And it gets mixed in thoroughly with groupthink and a blasé, indifferent conviction with regards to ethics. Hold your finger in the air after you've licked it to see which way the wind blows. That's ethics. And I've encountered a bit of that mindset most explicitly, most, most nakedly, most transparently in the comments section on a recent podcast episode I did here about a week ago, a little less than a week ago, preparing our children to defend against atheism, attracted some atheists, not a great many, but a few, enough, who came back to this very tired idea that we decide what is ethical. And we decide this as one commenter asserted, we decide what is ethical, what is good, what is proper by studying thousands of years of effort on the part of human beings to get at what is and is not ethical. Start with the Code of Hammurabi and work your way forward. And of course, ignore Judaism, ignore Christianity, those fail the test. Those have not been welcomed in as 
good examples of ethics and morality. No, no. You have to look to Hammurabi and anybody else who is not biblical, who is not of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But that doesn't work, in part because you get no end to competing ideas of what is and is not ethical. You get no end to the changing definition of what is or is not the right side of history. And what do you do when there is a disagreement about ethics? Who wins and how do you decide? For the Christian, the answer is very simple. God decides. God decides who wins. In fact, God wins. And whoever is with him on his side, they get the benefit and blessing of winning too. But everyone else is on the path to destruction, and it's wide. And most people are headed that way. Few there are who find the straight and narrow path that leads to salvation on God's terms, by God's grace. But it's a curious thing, looking at this piece, The Failure of Evangelical Elites by Carl R. Truman. It's quite long, so I can't, in good conscience, read the whole thing. Not if I want to provide any commentary of my own, and I certainly don't want to hijack his writing and make that the main feature of what I'm trying to put out there, as if I'm hitching my wagon to his wagon and expecting him to pull both of us. I don't think that's a recipe for success. But what strikes me is this notion that Christians can be welcomed by an anti-Christian broader culture outside of the church if we just give up those features of our belief, our doctrine, our practice, which are offensive to a non-Christian world. If we would just give up those distinctives they find offensive, then they would accept us and welcome us in. And isn't that what is needed if we're going to have a good testimony and if they're going to listen to us on the really, really important things like the gospel? And so a couple of things that are pointed out as examples of where you don't go as a polite Christian academic specifically, since he's talking, uh, Truman is, specifically about academia and evangelical elites. As long as you don't go disagreeing with the LGBTQ plus program, narrative, presumption, then perhaps you will be welcomed. As long as you tell the LGBTQ plus movement that your type of Christianity affirms all of its claims, or at least does not dispute its claims in the interest of love and inclusion, then perhaps you will have a seat at the table. But is your influence at that point anything which can be recognized as Christian. If you dispense with anything which would confront the broader culture, which would challenge the broader culture, which would call the broader culture to repentance, then are you sticking to the core 
of the gospel message? Do you understand what the core of the gospel message is? It would seem to me that when we are told that God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And when we read the bits about confessing our sins, repenting of our sins, turning away from our sins, that we're dead in our sins, that our sins separate us from a holy and righteous God, it follows that at a certain point, we have to start being specific. And if we refuse to be specific in calling sin what the society around us, the culture around us, outside of the church has affirmed, then we have committed ourselves to not preaching the gospel, to not testifying to God's truth, and that this is not born in the vast majority of cases out of a desire for a good testimony so much as a desire to be welcomed and accepted ourselves, a desire to not be hated, a desire to have a seat at the table and all the benefits that come with a seat at the table, a desire to not be passed over for promotions, a desire to not be terminated or forced to resign, a desire to go along with the flow. And it reminds me of things I talk about in my book, and this is why we homeschool, because I come to this chapter on public school teachers who are Christians. And I've been pleasantly surprised over the past few months to find that a lot of Christian public school teachers are resigning publicly at school board meetings because they're looking at the curriculum with regards to sex education and with regards to cultural Marxism, critical theory, critical race theory. And they're saying, this is antithetical to what I believe as a Christian. I cannot teach these things because these are offensive to the God in whom I believe, whom I serve, whom I love. I cannot be a part of teaching these things. And I can't be silent as these things are being taught because they are antithetical, directly contradictory, not a valid alternative, but they run explicitly, mutually exclusively opposite what I believe as a Christian. But before these teachers were resigning publicly, for years I heard from family and friends who were public school teachers or who were the parents or siblings of public school teachers who were providing Christian influence in the public education system that so long as you have Christians in your public school teaching serving as principals, serving as secretaries and nurses and coaches, it's fine to leave your children in there because the Christian influence of the Christian teachers and principals and secretaries and nurses and coaches will offset the explicitly anti-Christian, anti-biblical education that the children are receiving Monday through Friday eight hours a day. And what I found so remarkable about that claim, and I address this in my book, is the fact 
that the vast majority of those teachers, when I talk with them, when I let them just talk to me and I listen, the vast majority of those teachers are deathly afraid of being explicit in saying what they actually believe to these children. They can't bring it up and they can't go around displaying something which shows, which would allude to, which perhaps would prompt questions from the kids regarding God and Jesus and the Bible and the gospel. These teachers have been deathly afraid for some time now that if their Christian faith became explicit, anywhere near as explicit as the secular, humanist, atheistic, godless, anti-Christian indoctrination of the system in which they work, they would be fired. They would be called in to the office, reprimanded, scolded, warned, condescended to, explained that we don't do that. There's a separation of church and state. That's not permissible. We're going to get sued. We're going to have parents complain, or we're going to have a parent, any parent at all. If any parent at all complains and the ACLU gets involved, well, then it's hell to pay for us, so you'd better pipe down. And so the vast majority of Christian teachers in the American public education system did just that. They piped down. They kept quiet. They stayed so that they could have a godly influence by just being present. But Truman asks some very great questions as he charts the history over the past few decades of how evangelical Christians have been welcomed or, more to the point, not welcomed in academia, in establishment politics. What exactly is the point of having this supposed Christian influence if it must keep silent, if it must not interfere, if it must allow things to go on as they would if the Christian was not there? And as I put it in my book, is it possible that we give a very false sense of security to parents who feel conflicted about whether their children should go to public schools? Do we give those parents a very false sense of security by having professing Christians in the system to whom those parents can refer and say, ah, well, Mr. So-and-so, Miss So-and-so is there, and she or he goes to my church, and if she were not there, if he were not there, then we would definitely think about possibly maybe at some point sacrificing, paying a cost socially, financially, temporally, to pull our children out and educate them at home. But since they are there, they are in the mix, then it follows that everything's fine. This is fine. We'll talk with our children. We'll make sure we understand if they're getting something too, too explicit. And then we'll address it. We'll go to the teacher. We'll go to the school board meeting, et cetera, et cetera. We'll just explain to our children what we believe at home. All the while, the folks doing the indoctrination along pornographic lines or communist, literally Marxist lines, not an exaggeration, but boiling it down to its roots, 
those folks are also telling these children, your parents don't understand. Your parents are very backward in their thinking if they don't agree with this. You don't need to let your parents know. They don't need to know about this lesson. They wouldn't understand. They weren't given as good of an education as you're getting. Take it from us. And because your children are spending eight hours a day with teachers who either are not allowed to argue the point as a Christian or who are given free reign to argue the point if they are cultural Marxists, radical leftists, your child by design, as the system is designed to operate, transfers their feelings of filial piety to their teachers, to the public education system, and by extension to the government. That was the idea. If you go back, and again, this is in my book, I spell this out. Plato's Republic explicitly advocates for taking young children away from their parents when they're young, giving them into the hands of philosophers to raise them, on behalf of the state, so that these little children not only grow up to be philosophers, but they also grow up having filial piety for the polis, for the state, for the government. That sounds too cruel and twisted to be true, but it is true. But it's just those kinds of truths which get Christians, evangelical Christians, rejected. Not because the evangelical mind is so backwards and ignorant and we don't know anything, but because when we really do start to get an idea of what is going on, who the man behind the curtain is, for you Wizard of Oz fans out there, when we start to articulate that, we become a threat, an intolerable threat. And if we have power to do something about the things we're pointing out, that power needs to be taken away from us because we're a threat. If we have influence and authority, that influence and authority needs to be curbed and checked and eliminated, or else we might use it. Coupled with the knowledge we've just let be known, we have the understanding we've let be known that we have of what's really going on here we would actually do something and we would lead others to do something. And so examples have to be made of us. An opportunity for promotion comes up, but you've been honest and you've been direct and you've confronted bad behavior, abusive practices, dishonesty, unethical ways of handling people and situations. You've confronted that as a Christian because you are concerned about your testimony. Not because you're not concerned about your testimony, but because you are concerned about your testimony. And you've made enemies, and your enemies hate you, and they despise you, and they resent you, and they fear you. So when you're up for promotion, the conversation that's had behind closed doors is this guy, this gal, is always making trouble, always complaining about things to my face, which no one else is complaining about. No one else seems to have an issue with this. Ah, well, okay. But hang with me for just a second. I'll give you a little bit more of that honesty. 
for which Christians have often been beheaded, flayed, drawn and quartered, burned alive, drowned, beaten, stoned, made to drink poison. No one else was coming to you to complain because everyone else was talking with everyone else except for you and trying to deal with this in the same way that we think we decide ethical matters today. If the atheists are right, if the atheists who commented on episode 162 of season three, preparing our children to defend against atheism, if those atheists are right, and ethics is a matter of counting noses, it is what society decides it is, and ethics can change. Ethics now will be outdated in five years, in 10 years, in 30 years, they hope, because we will have evolved collectively in our understanding, particularly the more we strip ourselves of any semblance, any memory, any vestige of Christian religion, life and thought, representation. We figure out what is and is not ethical, what will or will not be born by counting noses. So then, person A has a conflict with what's being done, with some new change that someone with authority, with power, wants to make. And perhaps they have the right instinct. They object because this is objectionable. What is being done is unethical, is unfair, is dishonest. But in order to do anything about it, you're going to have to talk with everybody else except for that person about it and bring pressure to bear on that person from everybody else. All the while, you certainly wouldn't want to get on the bad side of somebody who's already demonstrated that they have a low standard where honesty and integrity and ethics are concerned. If you thought it was bad before you provoked them, just wait. Wait until the person with a fragile ego trying to prove their merit has been stood up to by you and they know because you stood up to them to their face. So then the Christian who abides by Matthew 18 goes to this person directly, privately, if at all possible. They've thought about it. They've molded it over. They've considered it. And if their effort within the organization, the institution, society, the community, what have you, is really in good faith to love and serve these people, to love even their enemies, because God commanded such, then they will try to deal with conflict in a biblical way, the way that Jesus says we should deal with conflict. Now, granted, we see in Matthew 18, if your brother sins against you, now who is your brother? And is your brother someone different than your neighbor? Is your brother a Christian brother, a brother in Christ, someone who also believes in Christ, or is brother interchangeable with neighbor? Fair question. Don't cast your pearls before swine. Don't give to dogs what is holy. So if your neighbor happens to be a swine or a dog, then maybe you don't go to them privately and make your case because they don't want to hear it and they're just going to abuse you for it. But if there's some chance this person might act in good faith and you go to them privately and you say, listen, this is what you said the other day. 
this is what you're doing. You're sinning against me. This is not fair. This is not just. That's not true. The things you're saying to justify what it is that you're doing are not true. You're bearing false witness against me. You're damaging my reputation. You're damaging my good name. It needs to stop. A couple of things might happen. One thing that might happen is that person might hear what you're saying, might suddenly realize, you're right, I am doing that. I'm sorry. I'm very sorry. I didn't realize I was doing that. I will make it right. Thank you for talking to me. I appreciate that. It takes guts. It takes courage to come and talk to me to my face, to tell me these things, and to try and address them when they're small so that we can have a good working relationship. Or, or another possibility is they will hate you for it. They will hate you for having confronted them because for the exact same reason that they were trying to change everything to get on the right side of history, for the exact same reason that they're throwing out all of how things were done before, they cannot bear being disagreed with and contradicted and told that actually, if we double check your math here, that's not correct. And I want you to be successful, so I'm telling you that that's not correct. This is correct, actually. No, 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 that's not correct. No, this is correct. And if they hate you for it, and if they were already causing trouble before, and if they were already willing for the truth to be a casualty as a means to the end of them getting power for themselves, securing power for themselves, What precisely do you expect they're going to do if they refuse to concede when confronted that what they were doing was inappropriate? What do you think they're going to do? They're going to do more of the same. They're going to pile on. They're going to double down. If they don't repent, they're going to double down. And so coming back to this Carl Truman article at First Things, academia has these Christians who were told by the likes Mark Knoll and George Marsden that if American evangelicalism would just give up indefensible positions that supposedly lacked intellectual credibility, like creationism, for instance, literal six-day creation, dispensationalism, then they would be accepted. They would be accepted into academia. They would have a seat at the table as professors of universities. They would be respected. They would be appreciated. If you would just give up on fighting anything that the establishment, which is antithetical, which is hostile to Christianity, wants you to give up on, then you would have a seat at the table. Then you would be able to influence things but only influence things where you're explicitly given permission to influence things and never where you'll have conflict. And so lo and behold, the kinds of Christians who listened to Mark Knoll and George Marsden and did get seats at the table have proven to be fairly useless. Pleasant, polite, amiable, but also houseplants furniture, window dressing. And meanwhile, 
the Christians who dared to contradict, call for repentance, confront, who dared to preach a gospel which is complete, those Christians found themselves removed, sidelined, marginalized, slandered. And increasingly, it's not enough, even for the houseplant type of Christian, to be present and silent. Because the woke business insists on loyalty. It insists on a public statement of faith, similar to being baptized. You're going to publicly identify yourself with our brand of ethics, morality, justice, or else. Or else you're out. You are canceled. Your career is canceled. Your social life is canceled. Your business is canceled. And what comes next is your life. Because we hate to see some bored, dumb creature suffer. We've destroyed your ability to earn an income or to show your face in polite society. And now you're languishing. Now you're homeless and impoverished and starving and threadbare. And we can't bear to watch you suffer in the condition that we put you in because we punished you for telling the truth and for having courage because we felt threatened because the truth was not a value to us. You put us to shame who did not confront these things, who were passive, who were willing for other men to fight and take all the risk and none of the reward. Or you stood up to us, you offended our pride, and now, now you pay. But what comes next? When people are destroyed in all other ways, dehumanized, made to look pathetic and ridiculous, mocked, derided as mindless, brainless, lacking integrity, lacking any merit, any place in polite society, what comes next is it becomes open season on physically assaulting and even murdering those people. The academics who want so badly to be respected may just find that they cannot have it both ways. They cannot serve both God and man. They cannot obey both God and man. And I love the way that Truman finishes off his article here. And I will read this piece, this last few paragraphs. He says, Yet leading anti-racist Christians operate within parameters set by cultural progressives. Police actions in 2018 accounted for the deaths of fewer than 300 African Americans, while in the same year, abortions of African American babies accounted for more than 117,000 of the same. One would think this extreme difference, 390 to 1, would make abortion the centerpiece of Christian critiques of racism. But abortion was remarkably unremarked upon in the myriad op-eds and blog posts about George Floyd and critical race theory that dominated establishment Christian websites in 2020. That is not surprising. Condemning abortion would not have been to the taste of the cultured despisers. Let me put it bluntly. Talking in an outraged voice about racism within the boundaries set by the woke culture is an excellent way of not talking about the pressing moral issues on which Christianity and the culture are opposed to each other. LGBTQ plus rights and abortion. Even Schleiermacher would cringe. Christian elites try to persuade the secular world 
that they aren't so bad, no longer in terms of enlightenment conceptions of reason, but in terms of the disordered moral preoccupations of the day. For all his brilliance, Schleiermacher did little to mitigate elite cultural contempt for Christianity or preserve Christian orthodoxy for future generations. He conceded too much and failed to see that Christianity is despised not simply because of its doctrinal content, but because of its moral teachings. I suspect the same will prove true today. Those who seek selective solidarity with our cultural despisers on the woke fixations of the day will find their strategy inherently unstable. We cannot pick and choose moral priorities. The Christian gospel is first and foremost a judgment on this world, not a selective affirmation of it in the service of winning friends and influencing people. Christians should not expect to be warmly embraced by the world, nor even to be tolerated. In John 15, Christ tells his disciples, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Hearkening to Jesus' words is not an excuse for sloppy scholarship any more than it is an excuse for indifference to injustice and evil. Nor does it justify treating with contempt those with whom you disagree. Christians who act despicably should not complain when they find themselves despised. But Jesus' warning surely reminds us that we do not need to take our cultural despisers seriously. Still less ought we to side with them against those who actually share our faith. Christianity tells the world what it does not wish to hear. We should not expect to be embraced by those whose thoughts and deeds contradict the truths of our faith, nor should we seek to make our faith more palatable, lest the salt lose its savor. Accommodating the world's demands is a fool's errand, as anyone who reads Schleiermacher should know. So, What's he saying? What he's saying is, on the one hand, if we're acting the fool, then we have no one but ourselves to blame. But how we define what is and is not acting the fool cannot ignore and neglect what Jesus tells his disciples in John 15. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. At a minimum, we should not be throwing one another under the bus as Christians because so-and-so over there dared to offend the status quo and we want so badly to be accepted, to have a seat at the table, that we're willing to shake our head and wag our finger and join in the disapproval. If and when we see a Christian brother being maligned and abused because they take a Christian position, they act out of Christian faith, in good faith, blamelessly, and they're hated for it, we should not be joining with the crowd that shouts, crucify them. And yet, to my distress, what I find so often is that when a Christian encounters persecution, very confused and sometimes very cowardly others in the community of faith, in the church, are very fast to Monday morning quarterback. Well, if you would have said this a little bit differently, then if you would have done that a little bit sooner or not at all or your tone or what have you, 
I think you could have avoided all of those. So you kind of brought this on yourself. All the while, we seem to forget that we are promised, we are promised that the world will hate us because we're not of the world. So when we're told, be not conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind in Christ Jesus, when we're told that, that we're in the world, but we're not of the world, and that the world will hate us, the more we are transformed by the renewing of our mind, it stands to reason, at a minimum, we should not be surprised when that happens. Going a step farther, at a minimum, we should not pile on as Christians. But dare I say it, it would be nice if Christians were quick to come to the defense of their fellow Christians when they're being maligned. Your reputation is being damaged. And by extension, if the way you are conducting yourself is in accordance with Christian faith, Christian life and thought, and you are being upright and blameless, then it follows that to throw that under the bus just because it's getting flack from the world is a bad testimony. That's actually where the bad testimony is, I would say, before the world hating you represents some grave existential threat to your testimony. Joining with the world in throwing Christians under the bus because they dared to stand for something, because they have enemies, that's not the escape route. That's the nail in the coffin. Now, I can say as a Christian who is living the life of the mind, who is intellectual, who is analytical, who loves to read, who loves to study, didn't feel some pressing need to get a whole lot of formal advanced degrees, but I do feel the need to study and to ponder and to think deeply, to study to show myself an approved workman who needs not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, rightly handling the word of truth, depending on your translation. I have noticed that those who are very academic sometimes get so addicted to being part of the club that they get snooty. They get a bit condescending. Rigorous standards being held to, abided by, of good scholarship, that's fine. But we have to take great care when good scholarship in our day means not offending the status quo. And there's a lot of ways that you can avoid offending the status quo. For instance, if we just said everything that needs saying in Latin when nobody speaks Latin, well then perhaps they wouldn't be so offended. If we just said everything in very high-powered, pretentious terms that are easily dismissed, then people wouldn't take our meaning and therefore they wouldn't be offended. If we put things in plain language and directly, not rudely, not harshly, but bluntly sometimes, 
for those who are hard of hearing or pretentious, we are more likely to succeed in calling people to repentance or encouraging them to greater fruitfulness, faithfulness in Christ, if they're already in Christ. We are more likely to comfort those who are afflicted, but we are more likely to afflict those who are comfortable and have them hate us for it, to have the world hate us for it. And the frank assessment, which I know from personal experience, is that when you do this, it will cost you professionally, it will cost you socially, it will cost you financially. There are costs, but you have to look at the cost of not. You have to think about what are the implications if I don't? What then? What's that cost? Am I willing to pay that cost? Is that cost less? No, it's far, far higher. If we become a society of cowards, it gets harder. It doesn't get easier. You leave the hard work to someone else. It doesn't get easier from here. It gets harder. The cost doesn't get less the longer we defer and kick the can down the road. It gets more. And if we're not practicing the courage to speak truth, to be honest, to take our lumps, what are we waiting for? We're waiting until we get that high-powered title, which can be taken away just as easily on trumped-up charges when the truth is no longer a value and we contributed to the truth no longer being a value because we kept silent or else affirmed things we knew to be of dubious veracity. I, for one, think that the blessings of telling the truth, of striving to faithfully serve God, are far greater than whatever the world can throw at us. Do not fear men who can only kill the body and then have nothing more they can do to you. Fear God who can kill the body and throw the soul into hell. Fear God. I got to leave it there. It is a Saturday morning. I need another cup of coffee. I've got some laundry to work on and some resting and relaxing to do today. Some catching up on personal organizer information about a week's worth with my wife, writing down what it is that we've been up to, what's happened, trying to keep a record so that we don't forget years to come, the good, the bad, the ugly, hopefully how even setbacks ultimately are used by God for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. But with that, I'll leave you there. I would check out this piece by Carl R. Truman if I were you. Give it a read. Give it some thought. It's worth a look. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.